0: This is the story, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the king of glory. He is the resurrecting savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead, they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands have just marked for salvation. say the phrase, once upon a time, kids, what am I about to do? Tell a story, right? Exactly. Now, when I mention a storyteller, which, if any, of these images do you think of? Do you envision any of these? Now, suppose you have to tell your story to this group. Of Anybody remember this? This is Gladiator, right? If there's ever been a a picture that really depicts what the Roman army was about, it would have been this movie, Gladiator. Now, you're not going to tell a story to these guys the way you would tell a story to a group of kids, right? And why is that? Because a storyteller is smart. A a storyteller understands that they have a particular audience in mind. They have to understand who they're talking to in order to be able to make a story relevant, in order for them to grasp what the storyteller wants to convey. This morning we have the story of salvation, as I mentioned, told on another Sabbath encounter, and we're told it in a way that Mark was confident would reach the people who were supporting these guys have you ever wondered why there are four gospels you know we take so many things for granted those of us that have been in 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 the church for a long time we use what I refer to as church words we're gonna have a handful of them this morning and synoptics is another one of those church words right synoptics it's two words sin to assemble optics to see Where's our opticians? Where are our, our eye doctors? Optics to view, right? So, synoptics is essentially the story of Jesus told for three different audiences. And Mark is the one that's told to the Romans, Matthew and Luke concentrate on a Jewish audiences. By the way, the different accounts in this in, in the Gospels aren't, as some suggest, as inconsistencies or contradictions. The differences were intentional. So let's pray and get into our text. Father, I'm grateful for these words and for Mark and the manner in which he wrote his gospel. And I pray, Lord, that you would use me to convey this message in that I would speak the words that you have prepared. For I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. And he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Now, as I mentioned, Mark's primary audience here was a pagan Roman. Those unfamiliar with, or frankly, they were probably not even the least bit interested in Jewish traditions and Jewish, the manner in which the Jewish people went about their services. Mark goes about his gospel in a manner that was meant to resonate with a pagan, a non-Jew, someone exactly like me. I was raised in a Jewish neighborhood, but I was Catholic, so you can imagine. That really wasn't, I wasn't a favorite in that neighborhood, particularly immediately after World War II. And those of you who are old enough understand exactly what I mean, because I'm also of German heritage. His story focuses on Jesus having another run in with the religious establishment, and at this time it was over healing on the Sabbath. Mark doesn't explain what the Sabbath is, or include the bit about the sheep in the pit like Matthew does. Because the main point of this story, from Mark's perspective, was the, he wanted the reader to focus in on the people who were there. Not necessarily the religious aspects of the Sabbath. Which is the main question that we're going to be asking this morning. Are you a Pharisee? A Herodian? Are you surrendered? Or are you not sure? Notice in verse 1, the word synagogue, it's similar to synoptics, is it not? I mean, it starts with the same S-Y-N, which means to assemble. And a god would be to be a, a house of either worship or instruction. So this gym is technically a synagogue, right? Because we're here to worship and we're here for instruction. And that's what a synagogue would be. And on that day, in church on that day, there were four different groups of people who I just mentioned, right? The Herodians, the the Pharisees, the surrendered, and those that are not sure. Now, each one has their role, and let's see what that might be. So as we continue in our text, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Why? So that they might accuse him. The they in verse 2 are now the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees and the Herodians were consumed with the here and now, this world. That said, they were quite different. The Pharisees were the group of religious folks who were primarily focused with appearance and outward conformity. Appearance and conformity should never be confused with believing. You can walk the walk and talk the talk, but that doesn't mean there's anything going on in here. And certainly, just to be clear, some of them believed. Some of the Pharisees were believers. There's no question about that. But the majority, if not most of them, were not. And, and to be clear, even though we're talking about a Jewish setting here, there are plenty of Pharisees in the church today. You can bet that there are Pharisees in every single church everywhere. Because they're consumed with the religiousness, with the order that it brings. I believe that the Pharisees, that Jesus had the Pharisees in mind in Matthew 6, 1, which reads, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And again, in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. It is not surprising that Jesus had a lot of run-ins with the Pharisees. They were very religious, but here's the thing. They were not very concerned about God at the personal level. What distinguished the Herodians from the Pharisees, and I believe why Mark included them in this story here, is that the Herodians had little to no interest whatsoever in the religious aspects of Judaism. They were merely social attendants. They were there for influence and power. And when you think of religious hypocrites, because let's be honest, we all do. Okay, when you think of religious hypocrites, you were thinking along the lines of a Herodian. Someone who was really there, but they were really just there for the social side to get connected. Because until, the, you don't see many Herodians in church anymore. Any idea why? Well, I think you really kinda know, because in the last 50 years, the social changes that have occurred, particularly in the West, no longer make you an outcast if you aren't in church on Sunday. Right? You don't have to go to church to still be socially connected, politically connected, and have plenty of influence and power in your community. But that wasn't so back in these times. That, frankly, that wasn't so even a hundred and something years ago. You know, you, it was expected that you were going to be in church on Sunday. And there are plenty of Herodians as well. <clears throat> now, I think instructive instructed that Mark makes it a point to include the Herodians because they were very much like the Roman political class. Right? Always making sure they were in the right place and be seen in order to expand and continue their influence in the community and their own power. Now, we have these two groups scrutinizing every single move that Jesus makes. And they have what? But one agenda. We just read it, right? Catch him doing something that they can use to discredit him. Recalling that with, even within Judaism, you had this group that was, it was all about influence and power. Love of God and concern for others had little to do with their religion. So as always, Jesus understands the situation and says to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, that is the Herodians and the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? Masterfully, Mark only records Jesus' words here concerning good and harm. Your Bible might actually say evil. Any spiritual minded Roman would be familiar with the good versus evil struggle that dominated the common conflict in any mythic quest narrative. I mean, we're all familiar with the quest narratives. I mean, they're, they're fantastic. The, the, the Odyssey and so forth. I mean, there's just, there's always a quest and there's always what? Good versus evil. And Mark is zeroing in on that here. But back to verse four. Jesus asked them this question, and they were what? They were silent. So in verse 5, the tension in the scene begins to build. And if I were an actor, which I am not, if I were an actor right here, I would get animated, and here's why. The root of the word translated anger here is interesting to me. There are only a couple of times in all Scripture that record Jesus anger. angry. It's only a couple of times. And in this particular instance, the word literally means to reach out and grasp. Now, it might sound and look a little something like this, so bear along with me. Jesus obeys the room. He calls the man with the withered hand up, and he asks the Pharisees and the Herodians a question. Now, to be clear, he wasn't asking them this question because he didn't know the answers. Of course he knew the answers. Why was he asking them the question? He was asking them the question so that they would think about it. And he was trying to actually give them an opportunity to get in sync with where their heart really was. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? But they were silent and he looked around at them. Now every parent in this room knows exactly what I was just doing. You see, Jesus is there, and words in a narrative can barely, really convey a a silent action, right? But everyone in the room knows when mom is mad, right? Everyone in the room knows when dad is mad. Yes is a sign of what? A sign of anger, but it's also a sign of frustration, It's huh? not? Right? It's a sign that you want so much more for somebody, and in that moment, they're not delivered. In that moment, expectations are out of sync. I have something for you, and you're, you're not getting it. And that creates a tension, does it not? So grieved by the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So we come to the pivotal scene of our story. Jesus is grieved because of the hardness of their hearts and he turns back to the man and he says, stretch out your hand. Now it's difficult to convey in 2019 exactly what was at stake for the unnamed man in our story. But I'm going to take a stab at it if I could get this mic to... cooperate. Imagine you're in downtown at the square on Veterans Day. Okay, this is a town where on Veterans Day there's still quite a gathering to pay honor to the veterans of our community. It's actually one of the things that I really enjoy about being here in Bainbridge is that there's still this sense of community that expresses itself at parades and various things. And on Veterans Day, There's quite a good showing, and you can account on the fact that most of the influential and important people in Bainbridge are there, right? I mean, you've been there. I imagine each one of you have at least one time been there. Now, think about somebody walking up to you and saying to you, Hey, I got this sign. I want you to hold up this sign in the middle of the square, right by where the Confederate guy is standing. I want you to just hold this up. And you look at the sign, and the sign says, veterans are horrible people and murderers. You think that the guy, if you're that person in that moment, you think that you're unaware of the fact that you're about to insult every single person who's there, make a mockery of everything that's there? Well, you've got a glimpse at the predicament of our man with the withered hand in that moment because in that synagogue you can count on the fact that every influential and important person in that community was there. Now, we have no idea how long all of this took, or if the man had time to consider his options. <laughs> we really don't, there's no time lapse, right? So I think we can safely imagine that he was fully aware of the tension in the room and that the, there was an enormous potential for consequences. I think we can safely assume that. What we do know here, we don't know how long it took, but we know that he did what? He stretched out his hand. And it was what? It was restored. Restoration. Mark this down. Restoration did not happen. It could not happen until he humbled himself and surrendered to Jesus in that moment. Now, a couple of church words that we use a lot around in every church. It's it's everywhere. Is the word sin and the word salvation. Recently, I've been spending some time reading theologians from a few centuries back and many of their writings simplify spiritual matters so eloquently making them easier to grasp. Take sin, for instance. In centuries past, the word commonly translated sin underlying meant offense. Offense. Now think about this. Think about how that would change verses like Romans 3.23. For all have offended and fall short of the glory of God. How about Romans 14.23? For whatsoever does not proceed from faith is an offense to God. Now, if I say it's sin, okay. But if I say it's an offense to God, that's pretty plain and simple, is it not? I mean, that's clear to me. I don't have to figure out what sin means in that particular thing. I understand that if it's not faith, if I'm not driven by faith, then what I'm doing is likely to be offending God. That's what that means. That's what sin means. It means to miss the mark. It means to offend. So in today's text, the story only records the salvation came to one man. It could have come to all of them. But it didn't. Why? The others wouldn't surrender. On the contrary, we'll see in a moment, they doubled down on their actions. They were so focused on their influence and power that they couldn't or they wouldn't be a bit concerned about their own offense to God. They were going through all the religious motions of churchness, not the least bit concerned about where their heart stood with their creator. This man had a choice to make. Stay crippled and one of the guys or be obedient to Jesus' command. And remember, who's Mark writing to? Romans. Remember the graphic? These are a very proud people. Surrender? Are you kidding me? A Roman would be like a Klingon. They would prefer to die than surrender. Right? Or the what is it? The, the, uh, is it Spartacus or one of those? Today's a good day to die. Right? Why? I'm not surrendering. You can forget that. Why? What is, what is, what is that? That is a reflection of pride, correct? It's saying, uh-uh. <laughs> no way. And Mark is writing to that group of people. And unlike me, he did it in a hundred (laughs) words. I mean, he just gets right to it. Boom, here it is. See, the thing about salvation, at least the salvation that I read in all throughout Scripture, is that salvation isn't possible unless you're willing to surrender your life to Jesus. You can say prayers, you can do an awful lot of this and that, you can walk the walk, you can look very religious, you can, you can, you can taste and smell like what a believer is supposed to be, and yet be miles from it, if you're so proud that you're unwilling to surrender yourself to Jesus. We just sang about it. I mean, how does the hymn go? I mean, I sang this hymn over and over again and frankly, you know, you get kind of repetitive and you're singing things and you realize you're just singing things. But all to Jesus, I surrender all. To Him I freely give. What's the next line? I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. Next line? I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Could there be anything less Roman and, may I say, less American? surrender it's just it's just not natural now talking people into things that are close to it that look sort of like it that those things are possible but it's hard for us to imagine or fully grasp this man's dilemma i doubt it was hard for mark's audience mark's readers were fully aware of their own social hierarchy the importance of the Herodian types, the religiousness of those that were all in on the Greek gods and so forth and and the Roman gods. They understood that. And yet, regardless of the risk, the consequences or the possible loss, the text says he stretched out his hand and he surrendered. And just as I and this man... And every one of you that have surrendered can attest that the moment you surrender, the rest of your life will never be the same. You are changed. And if you've never surrendered, I submit you'll never understand that. (laughs) So what about the other people in the room? Sadly, verse 6 tells us that the Pharisees and the Herodians' reaction is common of that of the world. It's just as common now as it was then. Mark concludes this encounter contrasting surrender and the hardness of those who refuse to surrender. Understand, the Pharisees and the Herodians, this is very important for you to understand. This is two groups of people that couldn't stand one another. Pharisee knew the Herodians were hypocrites. I mean, it was pretty obvious to them. And the Herodians didn't care, so they really didn't, you know, that really wasn't in the equation. But they did what? They conspired to utterly destroy the threat to their power and their influence. They conspired to get rid of Jesus. So who are you in this story? Perhaps you're in the fourth group. I mean, like I said, these are people who are in church. We're not talking about people who aren't bothering to be in the synagogue. We're, not, we're talking about people who are in church. So you've got your Pharisees, you've got your Herodians, you've got the people who are surrendered, and then you've got that other group. I'm going to label them the not shores. Okay, I'm hearing you. I just don't know that I'm buying what you're selling. Perhaps you're like King Agrippa in Acts 26. It's an interesting encounter that Paul had. Agrippa says to Paul, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And I would echo Paul's response in verse 29. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for the chains. Let's pray. Father, thank you for inspiring Mark to write this passage. And again, it's such a short passage, and yet it is so rich. It it reminds us that when Jesus was doing your will, in all of these encounters that he had, you were reaching out. And you were calling those that would be yours to reach out as well, and that's what we have to do. We have to be willing to humble ourselves. We have to be willing to submit. And I pray, Lord, that if there are any here that are that are listening to this talk and and are not sure, I pray that they would be willing to submit themselves to Jesus' request that they just come and relieve themselves of the burden of all of the offenses that they have piled up on, on Jesus and he bore them for them. Every offense that every one of us has ever made that offend you, Lord, Jesus bore them. And we're thankful for that. And we're going to, very shortly here, we're going to have communion. Which is another word that we use in church. That is essentially our, we're, we're confessing our common union with you. That we're not ashamed of the gospel. And we're not ashamed of you or to be called your children. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you for caring about the, the grace body here in Bainbridge. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.